3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past, present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. It's 7am on Tuesday, the 9th of August, 2022. Uh, This is Jasmine and I'm joined in the studio today with Carnegie, Fung and Jen. How are we all? Good. Great. Doing well this morning. How are you? Yeah, really good. Really good. That's good. Did anyone do anything fun on the weekend? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) Oh, actually, yes. I went to um, a really good movie at MIFF. Oh, what did you see? Um, I saw Kainga, which is, um, it's it's basically the third installation of like 10 minute short stories of women. And um, each one focuses on a different kind of group of women. So I think they've done Maori women before um, and another group. And this one was Asian migrants um, to New Zealand. So yeah, like absolutely phenomenal. Every single movie was amazing they're 10 minutes and they're shot um like in one continuous take and each one explores a different diaspora that's moved there and it's just incredible mm. did you go to the to, to a theater to see yeah it? i went yeah. to the forum oh nice yeah. There's oh, a it's always nice there. The forum. Yeah, it was and they did a q a after which was cool. also great yeah Oh, I'm so excited. I've got all my movies lined up yeah. for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I feel like I'm so out of practice since COVID and lockdown um, that when everyone was like, Myth's coming, I got so overwhelmed and I was like, I can't even look yeah. at it. It's too There's much. It's like a billion movies. It's a lot. <laughs> It's, it's like a lot. Really I started hard. a short list and it was so long. Yeah, the short list is never short. Yeah, yeah. so I, I had to just close all my 400 tabs and just like on on the day I was like, what's on today? And then I just bought the tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good to be, I yeah. think, like uh, impulsive and if you can get the tickets to something mm-hmm. that night. Yeah. Um, cool. My sister booked a ticket for her to go see War Pony and she was like, do you oh, want to yeah. come? And I was like, mm-hmm. yes. Like, please, I don't need, I don't want to make a decision. But um, it's directed by, it's made made by Riley Keough, who is Elvis Presley's granddaughter. And it's set on a Native American um, reservation. Um, And, yeah, about the Oglala Lakota community. So um, I heard from a few people that it's really good so looking forward mm, to that i'm seeing that next week oh, i'm so cool. excited yeah, yeah. wait <laughs> we might be in the same session. <laughs> there's actually a really great film as well um called sweet as and it's the first first nations filmmaker so to come from wa and um it's actually also going to be playing at the toronto international film festival cool. so the world premiere though will be um at the melbourne international film festival and the director is um jub clerk yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Sounds incredible. That's on my long shot list. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there are a bunch of stuff. Um, it's playing online too, right? Cause mm. Yeah, Miss Play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I like that they're still doing that. Yeah. The shorts and everything. Yeah. yeah. The shorts it's great for a homebody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and because it's so cold. It's so cold. 
Um, well, this has been Myth Corner. Yeah. <laughs> for Myth people plug. listening, yeah, for people takes, listening at home. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get stuck into what's coming up on the show today. So we're starting with. Um, an interview with Jesse Hooper. So they'll be joining us on the show to talk about the Young Leaders Program, which is um, a program organised by the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. So I won't give too much away, but yeah, Jesse will be on the show first up at quarter past seven to speak to us about that. And then uh, we'll be speaking with Renee Dixon, who is the founder and chair of the Forcibly Displaced People Network, um, the first registered LGBTIQ plus refugee-led organisation. So looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, I think then we'll be speaking to uh, Lisa Dominan from the ASU. Uh, the ASU and the ACTU were super instrumental in negotiating paid domestic violence, violence leave in workplaces across Australia. Um, and Lisa was at the forefront of that. So we'll be talking to her about what that was like and why this leave is important. Um, and then just rounding out today's show, I'll be speaking to Ella, who is a student at RMIT and a part of the group RMIT Students for Palestine. We'll be talking about the recent announcement that there's been a partnership between RMIT and the Victorian government and an um, a company called Albert Systems, which provides a lot of weapons to Israel. Um, so we'll be chatting about that. Cool. All right. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August, at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for Tuesday, the 9th of August. Um, just news from Palestine, uh, Israel and the Palestinian armed group Islamic Jihad declared a truce late Sunday after three days of heavy Israeli bombardment um, on Gaza. According to the latest official information from the Palestinian Health Ministry, 44 Palestinians, including 15 children, were killed and at least 350 civilians wounded. Since 2008, Israel has waged four wars on Palestine, killing nearly 4,000 people, one quarter of them children. Um, according to data compiled by the Defence for Children International, at least um, 2,200 children have been killed by the Israeli military and Israeli settlers across occupied Palestine since 2000. Um, so watch this space for um, what's happening um, over there. 
Now to teacher shortages. Um, Australia's education ministers will attempt to address the national teacher shortage in a meeting this Friday as universities call for longer school placements, um, teaching apprenticeships and collaboration between government schools and unions in tackling the problem. It comes amid concerns uh, teacher shortages could worsen, with modelling suggesting demand for secondary school teachers will outstrip graduates by more than 4,000 in the coming years. Uh, the... Um, the issues paper release said that COVID-19 was only one factor at play in a broader and systemic issue. Other factors, including the status of the profession, uh, workload pressures and declining enrolments in teacher training courses. There were also limited career opportunities for teachers to be recognised and remunerated for their expertise. Um, teachers' conditions such as the increasing weight and complexity of workloads as well as flattening salaries have also contributed to the shortage um, with one of the discussion questions for Friday's meeting focused on strategies for reducing the administrative burden on teachers. Uh, And just lastly, the future of Sydney's National Centre of Indigenous Excellence remains uncertain, despite the federal government authority that manages the site announcing a deal had been reached to secure its future. The Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation raised hopes on Sunday when it announced it had reached an agreement with the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council to keep the doors of the social enterprise hub, which provides health and wellbeing services for Indigenous people open. The Redfern site has been the epicentre of a sustained community outcry since its imminent closure was revealed last week with hundreds of supporters, elders and advocates rallying in support of the centre's future. In a statement posted to its website, the ILSC said they had been in constant discussions with the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council over the weekend and said they anticipated services and operations would go ahead under the new arrangement. Um... If you haven't seen on social media, there is a lot of uh, information and people trying to save Redfern. Um, a good uh, page that I found on Instagram that I think is being widely circulated is Redfern Youth Connect, which is posting a lot of information about how you can help if you're in New South Wales. Um, and just lastly, some local news from Footscray. Um, a man has been fined over a garden and petting zoo that he created just outside his house over lockdown. Um, Eddie Kwong, a resident of an apartment bordering Footscray Park, is being threatened with fines because of a community garden um, that he has created on a strip of parkland outside his building line fence line. Um, the garden was a big hit during lockdown. Lots of families and children coming to see the animals that he keeps there. Um, and so local residents are doing what they can to try and save the garden, calling it a crucial part of Footscray's community and character. Council is um, essentially asking him to get a landscaping permit to keep the garden as a community space, um, but the community is rallying behind Eddie to um, help him keep it. Um, and there's a petition online which has over 1,800 signatures wow. at this point. I want to go visit. <laughs> It's so cute. We walk past it often, and it's it's just so nice. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. Um, also, sorry, I was just reading on the news, um, Olivia Newton-John died this morning. Yeah. Um, and just 73, is it? Yeah, 73. Um, maybe we'll play a song <laughs> later on in the show. 
Um, but yeah, sad news. She uh, had breast cancer, so passed away. Um, all right, we'll go to a quick break and we'll be back with uh, an interview right after this. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by um, Jesse Hooper, who is here today to speak to us about the Young Leaders Program, which is organised by the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. Jesse is actually a graduate of this Young Leaders Program. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, just to start us off, could you please tell us what this Young Leaders Program is all about? Yeah, of course. So the Young Leaders Program is an absolutely great program. So as you said, it's run by WIDAS. And it's a program for any young Victorian who identifies as having a disability, a health condition, mental health issues, autistic, etc. And it runs over four workshops and teaches anyone to who do the program about what a leader means and actually how to go about being a leader. And so, you know, it's about being learning and it's supporting young people to become leaders, to grow in personal confidence, to develop in themselves, to, learn, to earn those leadership roles that they want and to grow some power and influence in society. Um, you know, I've, I've known people who have come into this program not believing that they're a leader. And this program actually teaches you that there are different types of leaders and whatever type of leader you want to be, it's really awesome because this program can teach you what you want to learn. Yeah, that's awesome. So from your experience, Jesse, can you <clears throat> tell our leader, um, tell leaders, tell our listeners, um, what skills um, do you learn and what experiences can people expect from this program? 
Yeah, so this program like really encourages obviously the leadership and your advocacy skills as well as the gaining confidence. Not only does the program educate you about the different things such as the social model of disability, inclusion, culture, you get to listen to some absolutely amazing guest speakers. It encourages the leaders to look at your self-discovery, learn different ways of working in a team and develop communication skills. You get some great times to actually develop your own advocacy skills in the form of like debates. So, you know, for example, when I did it, we got to debate over, you know, some silly things and we debated over our favourite flavour of chips and our favourite animal and why everyone should actually like that instead of our own favourites, just as some practices before we did some proper debates of advocacy. Of course, you've got, you know, learning about actually proper goals, which Everyone groans about, but in program, they teach you about how to make a proper goal and you actually implement it while they help you. Um, you've got 15 young leaders in the program each time it runs, and this means you actually get to learn and work with the other people and learn about those people that are with you. Yeah, that sounds awesome, and it sounds like um, it covers a wide range of of skills that would be incredibly useful for young people. Um, uh, I like what you said about setting goals. I think you're right. Like sometimes people groan at the idea and don't actually know how to go about it in an effective manner. So I imagine that would be an incredible, incredibly useful part of the program. Um, could you tell us why it's important to have programs like this? We know that there is a lack of representation in leadership positions and decision-making goals, um, especially with, um, you know, the lack of representation from people in disabled communities. Um, So why is it important for programs like this to run, especially for young people? Oh, it's incredibly important, you know, to have people with disabilities and different life experiences to have leadership and decision-making roles in Victoria and Australia. Um, But first of all, I just want to touch on the Young Leaders Program is just so inclusive. Um, it really demonstrates the standards of including people with disabilities and making it a comfortable and safe environment for the young leaders to actually be able to grow. And they do this by removing the barriers as that, like as much as they're able to. And we do this by sharing pronouns. All facilitators have a mental health first aid training and as well have a trained support worker attending, giving the workshop materials in advance to help identify triggers, asking for accessibility needs and providing Auslan interpreters if needed. And not to mention the program's completely online for 2022. Um, The Young Leaders Program is a great program for anyone to be able to learn about themselves and how to become a leader and have support in doing so and are able to learn about an environment that is comfortable for themselves. But, you know, to have actual disability representation, it's just incredible, you know, we need that in Australia. Very often decisions are made for people with disabilities um, by people who don't actually have a disability and can harm the disabled community. Um, and it's just so important because, you know, to have people um, with different life experiences, such as disabilities, be represented within leadership positions and making decision-making goals. Um, you know, it needs to be seen more within schools, communities, governments, but just generally in life and teaching in the Young Leaders Program about different advocacy skills means that the young leaders can actually decide what type of leader they want to be 
and how they can represent themselves and their communities. Yeah, that sounds very empowering, Jesse. Um, Can you tell us what are some of the opportunities that can stem from this program? Oh, so many opportunities. It's great. Uh, Our completion of this program, you know, you get to graduate with the title of a white-ass young leader, which is pretty cool. It looks great on your resume. (laughs) And a lot of people do really care about you. You can also get a reference from the white-ass team, and that can actually help you get into a job or into a course. Um, you know, in the program, you get to make a goal, including where you want to be in six months. And the White House team can actually help you follow up with you in those six months about where you want to go and what you're up to, and if they're actually able to assist. So instead of just making a blanket goal, they actually can help you. And after the program, you get to be on a mailing list until the age of 25. I personally have actually found this amazing because that's where they'll actually let you know and everyone else who has completed the Young Leaders Program about opportunities that are available. I have received so many opportunities about completing the program. I actually started the program super shy. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, But because of the Wide Ass Program, I actually do speaking events now. I've gotten the jobs as disability advocate, speakers, um, all sorts of things. And, you know, just the opportunities that come out of this program is just amazing. Yeah, awesome. So if there are any young people with a disability listening today or anyone who knows of someone who would be interested in uh, signing up for this program, um, can you tell us any of um, where they can go? Um, Are there any courses starting soon? Yeah, definitely. So if you want to know more about the program, just search up on Google YDAS Young Leaders Program. There's actually currently an application open for 14 to 19-year-olds that's running in September. The applications do close today, 9th of August. If you're a 20 to 25-year-old, the November program is currently open for applying uh, and the applications close on the 11th of October. Awesome. Well, we can pop all of those details into our show notes later this morning if anyone is interested in applying or um, getting a a young person in their life to apply. Um, Thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us on the show today uh, to speak to us about the White Ass Young Leaders Program. Thank you so much for having me. We were speaking to Jesse Hooper just now, who is a graduate of the... um, Young Leaders Program that's organised by Youth Disability Advocacy Service. If you're interested in applying or if you know someone who would like to uh, apply for the program, you can visit the website at www.yacvic.org.au forward slash YDAS. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. So next up we have a song by singer-songwriter from Western Sydney, Ashley. Uh, Ashley produces pop, soul and R&B. This is a new track from them that was released on the 5th of August uh, called Dance Again.
was Ashley with uh, their track Dance Again. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. 
Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Renee Dixon is a founder and a chair of the Forcibly Displaced People Network, which is an LGBTIQ plus refugee-led organization. Renee is also completing a PhD in, in a digital, building a digital archive about LGBTIQ plus forced displacement. They are on the show this morning to talk to us about the work FDPN does and their recently released survey. Welcome to the show, Renee. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, can we just start by giving our listeners a little bit of a background about what FDPN is and how it came about? Oh, sure. FDPN came about very gradually. So first we started doing a queer sisterhood project and then we understood that we need to bring together more um, uh, more stakeholders and talk about um, with people with lived experience because often uh, so we organized queer displacement conference back in 2018 where we brought academics, advocates, NGO and government. Um, but most importantly, we brought people with lived experience because often they're doing research, they're making decisions which is affecting our lives, but they never often consult with us. Um, and then after this, we developed a Canberra statement and we understood that the logical step it will be to um, to, to establish organization and um, to work towards to the systemic change. And our aims is to ensure safe and inclusive home for all LGBTQ displaced people. Um, and because like needs of LGBTQ people is still remain um, unaddressed, so we're working to both support people and making more uh, structural changes, such as, for example, providing training to other services um, on how they can better support our communities um, of LGBTQ plus refugees and migrants. Yeah, and, um, you know, this is uh, one of Australia's first kind of organisations that's refugee-led in this space. Um, what kind of led to, you know, how, how did you realise there was a big gap in uh, understanding the specific struggles of queer refugees and people who are displaced globally? Look, I came as a refugee myself with my partner, um, and I could see clearly these uh, the single narratives that exist in refugee spaces and resettlement services, and I could see the exclusion of um, LGBTQ, uh, in LGBTQ organisations. So, and... First, I thought, oh, it's probably just only my experience. But then we start connecting with more more people, and they feel in the same way. Um, and um, yeah, I, and we understood that no, it's, it shouldn't be like that because um, all refugee organizations at the same time they mostly run and um, done in a way by um, by white privileged people. 
um, who doesn't understand sometimes um, the, the needs and how uh, the decisions are like really affecting our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that having a organization that's led by um, people with lived experience is um, filling an absolute gap that exists currently in Australian immigration and just in Australia, I think, generally. Um, so FTPN has just released the first Australia-wide survey to capture the experiences of displacement and settlement of uh, forcibly displaced LGBTIQ people. Can you tell us a bit more about this survey? Uh, this will be the first survey, as you said, because um, most national survey, surveys uh, on either refugees or LGBTQ people do not look into experiences of LGBTQ class displacement. So, for example, private lives, um, the largest survey in Australia on health and well-being of LGBTQ people, but they do not look and um, not collecting the information about visa status. But the visa status is like so in so many ways affecting our lives. Um, and in our survey, we're going in depth in all areas of public and private lives, such as access to education, employment, um, experiences of violence, homeless. And we aim to look comprehensively at one's life as LGBTQ refugee and migrant. As we see um, <clears throat> that they were not... Um, they were not giving uh, equitable opportunities. And I should say that this survey we developed with advisory committee who consists of um, researchers, but most importantly, the majority of the people, it was the people with the lived experience of displacement. Um, yeah, I think this is uh, super important to, to collect this information. Um, can you give, us, give our listeners a bit of an overview of um, what you hope to gain with the information you collect? Collecting this information is very important because, first of all, there is, a comp- uh, there is no comprehensive uh, data on our experiences. And sometimes it can be used as an example against, uh, like, uh, against our community when they think, oh, we don't really uh, know because we don't have data, we don't know how many people, and they're choosing not to act and not to do anything for our community. So now with this report, they will not have a chance not to do anything, you know, and uh, we will be able to show um, what there is um, our community is struggling with, and we will try to address them as, as the best as we can. So, for example, we already can see how many responses we got and that uh, people experience discrimination and harassment both because who they are, because they're queer and refugees and because they are migrants. And most uh, people do not lodge any complaints because they're worrying about their visa status. They're uh, not believed, uh, they're not believing that they will be helped. So we're collecting responses until October. And um, it's very important that if you are LGBTIQ asylum seeker, refugee or migrant from non-Western country uh, to include your voice and to um, to be in this survey. And of course, if you're an international student who is planning to stay in Australia, please uh, include yourself and um, go to the website and um, fill this form. Amazing. Um, yeah, it sounds definitely like this can um, will 
likely be the basis for a lot of really important um, policies and policy change moving forward in these spaces. Um, and I think one thing you've touched on, it, which is extremely prevalent in these spaces, is that people find it very difficult to understand the intersections of being queer, being a person of colour, being a migrant, being a refugee. I feel like all the services at the moment are quite separate and, as you mentioned, are often run by white people who may not understand, you know, the huge range of different experiences captured in this group. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and we try and cover best uh, to, to break it down and uh, to talk about this more and um, bring lived experience at the forefront. And we're asking a lot of services to stop doing and taking decisions without us and engaging us uh, with, with the decision making and to organize um, uh, co-design groups, um, consultations, because... Um, it, it's 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 a waste of time and money if they're doing this without us. Absolutely. Um, if any of our listeners do want to do the survey, uh, where can they go? They can go to our website, which is fdpn.org.au. Amazing. And do you have any social media presence that people can follow as well? Yes, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, but we are most actively involved in in Instagram. Excellent. Um, so we will link to all of those things in our show notes later today so that um, anyone listening that's interested can find out more and do the survey. Um, Renee, that's all we have time for this morning. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this very important issue. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. So that was Renee Dixon from the Forcibly Displaced People Network talking to us about their recently released survey that aims to capture the experiences of displacement and settlement of LGBTIQ plus forcibly displaced people. If you uh, do meet the eligibility criteria that Renee just outlined and, and are interested in completing the survey, we will link it in our show notes today or you can find it at fdpn.org.au. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Lovejoys. So they were formed in the 80s in London and London, and are heralded as one of the only roots reggae groups to be entirely made up of women. This track is off their debut and only album, Lovers Rock Reggae Style, and is called All I Can Say. <laughs>
just playing over the top there is uh, the Love Joys with their track All I Can Say. Uh, next up, we're going to play uh, Fung's interview with Shannon Bassoon um, from a couple of months ago. Um, in light of the recent changes to family violence leave, we're revisiting this interview as it's about another very important workplace issue for women. Uh, and it is Fung speaking with Shannon from Liberty Victoria about a report released earlier this year on menstrual leave called Policy for Equality, Menstrual Pain as a Workplace Issue. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Shannon. Could you please start by telling us more about Rights Advocacy Project? Uh, Yeah, of course. So Liberty Victoria, who are a human rights and civil liberties organisation that have been around since the 30s, they coordinate a rights advocacy project, which has an annual intake of about 20 or so uh, law students and law graduates who uh, they're assigned to a different group. So I was lucky enough to be assigned to the equality team and we decided to research and uh, write a report on menstrual leave. Um, There is currently very little research into the impact of menstruation at work. Could you take us through the survey that you conducted for this report? Uh, Yes, um, that's the predominant reason why we decided to do our own research. Unfortunately, there was little research available to demonstrate the impact of menstrual pain and symptoms on study and employment. Um, So we conducted our own uh, survey and we had 484 respondents, which was uh, a pretty decent amount of people since the uh, survey was only open for a couple of weeks. Um, The questions that we we asked varied, um, as did the participants. There were uh, a number of different people from different age groups, uh, employment status and uh, industry that they worked in. Um, So we had a pretty uh, diverse uh, survey pool, which was really great. We had a number of um, different questions that we put to the participants, like what kind of impact has menstrual pain uh, and conditions had on your employment and study? And we found that um, nearly 90% of survey respondents said that menstruation has had an impact in some capacity, which varied quite substantially uh, on their work and study. Um, We had nearly 50% of Respondents say that they were required to take unpaid leave to deal with menstrual pain and symptoms, with just under 50% also saying that they've had to power through shifts to uh, avoid any financial detriment from having to take time off work. Mm. The fact that so many people responded to the survey in such a short amount of time just really tells you how passionate people are about this issue. and. Mm-hmm. Reading the report, I related so much to a lot of the anecdotes that were provided, which, yeah, just tells you how widespread this issue is, but also um, is sort of validating in a way because you know that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that was like, you know, going back on the report, just reading it now, um, that's one of my favourite parts of it is the inclusion of anecdotes. It's not so common that in reports that we really centre uh, anecdotes of people with lived experiences. So we're really grateful for, you know, nearly 500 people taking part in it. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you felt validated reading through it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can kind of feel like we're uh, being culturally gaslit. Um, so yeah, it's nice um, that yeah you felt less alienated. Um, also with the yeah passion of individuals wanting to um, participate in the research. 
we found that nearly 35% of the respondents said that they've actually got a diagnosable menstrual condition, which is greater than um, the general population. So the research um, findings, we're no way trying to generalise or universalise that to the general Australian population. But, yeah, it is really interesting um, that of the survey participants, um, those who experienced a um, condition were more inclined to participate. Mm. And so what were some of the common themes that emerged from the survey? Like you said before that you had a whole host of respondents who came from different backgrounds, different age groups, different industries, but what were some of the commonalities between their experiences? A lot of the respondents mentioned uh, their, their fear, whether real or perceived, about talking to their bosses about menstruation, found that even, uh, even where workers had female bosses, they were still intimidated um, and very reluctant to talk about their menstrual pain to their bosses. We also found, um, yeah, a concern around job security. Uh, one thing that is very alarming is that the respondents who were casual, um, yeah, they were more inclined to power through shifts and not take time out because of the concern that their bosses just aren't going to call them back if they need to take unpaid leave. Mm. And, of course, that is just a reflection of a, of a bigger issue when it comes to the rights of, of casual workers. Mm-hmm. There are some countries, though, that have already implemented menstrual leave policies. Could you please give us an overview of what's already out there? Yeah, so that was something that was quite surprising in the uh, initial research phases of the project was that there were some countries that had already implemented it in their labour standards, kind of like our Fair Work Act So countries like Japan, um, Taiwan, South Korea and Indonesia, they've got varied um, models of menstrual leave, both paid and unpaid. So, for example, I think Japan has had it since the 1940s, um, but uh, it's unpaid. And as far as I'm concerned, that the uh, uptake is quite low. I think less than 1% of workers have actually uh, utilised unpaid menstrual leave during their employment. Um, in jurisdictions like South Korea where there's uh, paid menstrual leave, the uptake is a little higher. But interestingly enough, the uptake has reduced, um, I think, by 4% between 2013 and 2017. Um, I'm not quite sure what factors explain uh, the reduced uptake. Um, yeah, it was certainly not what I was expecting. But I think the general factors explaining um, reduced uptake, uh, fear of harassment, fear of discrimination, and broader menstrual stigma. Yeah, I mean, the report mentions quite early on that that menstruation is still very much a taboo and and we don't really talk about it in plain language um, and Mm -hmm. talk about it openly. So uh, to feel comfortable talking about the pain that you get when you have your period is you can understand why people are too scared to to communicate about that at work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the important thing about um, our menstrual leave report and campaign in general is that it's not simply an awareness raising campaign. It's we're trying to in- implement something that uh, is material and can tangibly assist workers, um, which can have an impact then to address menstrual stigma, um, albeit in an indirect way. It's not the main purpose, but um, yeah, at our panel a couple of weeks ago, Mary Crooks, who's the director of the Victorian Women's Trust, and they've got a policy of paid um, menstrual leave. She was talking about how uh, even at her uh, work that workers are way more inclined to talk about 
um, menstruation um, than they were prior to the implementation of the policy, which is really encouraging. And and so speaking of which, how would menstrual leave fit into existing leave entitlements? I think there's a few different options for pushing for uh, menstrual leave. So we could implement menstrual leave through the Fair Work Act, which is quite unlikely given that we've got a coalition government. I can't imagine um, uh, a majority of politicians in um, parliament uh, voting for menstrual leave um, in the Fair Work Act, but that's certainly one avenue. Um, The avenue that uh, I personally am more for is through uh, the implementation of menstrual leave via enterprise agreements. I think it is uh, a really important place for workers to find out about enterprise agreements in general and to also, um, yeah, realise their power um, in collectivising. So not just around menstrual leave but other issues too. Um, So, yeah, join your union, speak to your colleagues and push for menstrual leave that way. But, um, yeah, we're also aware that uh, some companies have implemented it via uh, policies but policies can be revoked, they can be amended, oftentimes without having to consult workers or um, seek a majority of vote, um, which is quite different to enterprise agreements. They can also be implemented through modern awards. Um, The Fair Work Commission, who would need to review the awards, would need to um, propose and, um, yeah, push for that amendment, uh, which, yeah, I'm not confident that that would happen anytime soon. Um, But there's also the flexibility angle of menstrual leave as well. So in the Fair Work Act, there's uh, flexible work arrangements, but um, you have to meet certain criteria. So, for example, you have to have a disability. Um, So if you experience menstrual pain and it's not severe dysmenorrhea, which is another word for menstrual pain, or a diagnosable condition, you're probably not going to be able to ask your boss for flexible work arrangements because you need to meet that definition of um, disability, Mm. which is similar to what we've got in Victoria. We have the Equal Opportunity Act, which is an anti-discrimination statute. If you've got a disability, employers need to make reasonable adjustments as long as you can still perform the genuine and reasonable or inherent requirements of the role. Um, As you can imagine, if you're asking for reasonable adjustments, bosses are probably then going to say, well, hang on, can you actually perform the inherent requirements of the role? Um, uh, Which then, uh, yeah, calls into question your job security and it's it's not an ideal path. And again, it um, brings into question, well, do you have a disability? Um, That makes the definition under the Equal Opportunity Act. So we think that even though there are avenues for workers to follow, it's plainly inadequate. Um, so we need something additional. Definitely. Um, just touching on what you were saying about flexibility around the workplace, COVID has taught us a lot about flexible and inclusive workplaces, especially for people with chronic illnesses or living with a disability. How will having comprehensive menstrual leave policies benefit everyone in the community? I think um, one of the impacts that we were talking about earlier is addressing menstrual stigma more generally, which is an indirect impact of um such entitlements. But I think um, it doesn't start and end with menstrual leave, and I'm not um, saying that menstrual leave is the most important additional leave entitlement we should be pushing for. I'm hoping that it's like a bit of a starting point for workers to realise that we can ask for uh, additional entitlements. We don't just have to deal with what's on offer, which is inadequate. Um, Workers can, uh, yeah, demand through enterprise agreement negotiations and other means of additional types of leave entitlements like 
chronic disability leave or uh, additional parental and carers leave or uh, more COVID leave or domestic violence leave. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we really hope that um, people can realise that there's so much more that we can be pushing for um, and collectivising around. Finally, if there are people who would like to raise this issue at work, how should they go about this? I think um, presenting it to your colleagues as a, uh, a viable option is really important. I think joining your union is also really important too and giving that feedback um, back to uh, union officials then remind them that this is a bottom-up issue, this can be a member-led uh, issue. Um, on our panel last week, uh, Kate Marshall from the Health and Community Services Union spoke to uh, menstrual leave as something that they're pushing for in enterprise agreements, which is is really exciting. Um, it definitely sounds like a bottom-up approach um, to this issue, as it as it should be. Um, so, yeah, I would advise uh, workers to join your union, talk to other workers and for them to join their union, talk to your union about um, negotiating with your employer and if 50% or more of you are interested in negotiating for an enterprise agreement you should consider doing so because having award, having conditions that are greater than the award is something that um, yeah is definitely worthy of fighting for. Thank you so much Shannon for for joining us this morning on 3CR Breakfast. If there are any people out there who want to read the report we can have a link in our show notes to that report so people can check it out later this morning. But, yeah, thanks again for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organisation providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. So just before that CSA there, that was Fung speaking with Shannon Bithune from Liberty Victoria about menstrual pain being a workplace issue. Uh, this interview first aired on Tuesday Breakfast on the 22nd of March 2022, and you can listen to the whole episode on our website. We're going to go to a track now by uh, Nam's own neo-soul singer Kite, and this is a track called Natural Woman. Body bubble body bubble hey yeah. Blind, I was blind away all our songs to complicate their piano and guitar chords. Sing about kissing the midnight on a rooftop. Saying you let's go me to your bedroom, right? We'll be watching movies all night. Know how to grind and sit by them, both that shit tired. They not no makeup on, still stuff on my head. You look into my eyes. Yeah, I prefer this you instead. You make me feel like a natural woman, my money. You make me feel like a 
with Natural Woman. Lisa Darmanen is the Secretary of the Australian Services Union for Victoria and Tasmania. Um, she has been a proud and passionate unionist and activist since 1997. Um, Lisa has been recognised by the Victorian uh, Honour Roll for Women in 2016 for achieving gender equity for women and has spent time working at the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet working on initiatives in gender equality and family violence prevention. Lisa is on the show this morning to talk to us about her leadership and advocacy as ASU Secretary in getting the government to legislate family violence leave in workplaces all over Australia. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Good morning. Um, so this has been um, something that we've been talking about on the show uh, for a while, and we're so excited that um, Family Violence Leave is now going to be accessible to people across the country. Um, can you maybe start off by just giving us a little bit of background on what it is? And, um, you know, it's been a long journey getting here, so kind of a little bit of background on what, what that was like. Sure. So... Family violence leave is essentially paid leave for survivors of family violence 
to um, take time off work without losing pay in order to deal with matters related to family violence. So it might be moving house, um, attending court proceedings, police, medical appointments, moving kids from school, um, those kinds of things. So to, you know, those things take time, those things need to be done outside of the workplace. And so the leave entitlement is to ensure that um, survivors who need to access that time away from work can do so without losing pay. Um, and there's also a range of other supports around um, the leave entitlement. And those things are around um, making sure that the employer um, is well equipped to deal with um, a worker who might be experiencing family violence at work to give them um, other support that they need in order to support them in what is really stressful, difficult time for them. Absolutely. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, it's been kind of decades of campaigning. Uh, you know, why do you think that previous governments have refused to support this leave? Well, um, the previous government doesn't didn't really um, support workers in a whole range of ways, and this is just um, another example of that. But I think, um, you know, obviously um, a, an entitlement to paid leave means the employer has to pay the worker when they are not at work. Um, so, you know, what the common argument that we have come across uh, by those who were in opposition to the leave were that it would cost too much money, um, it would have too much of an impact on the workplace. Um, but what we have seen is throughout the years that we've been negotiating this entitlement into workplace agreements since um, 2010 is that, in fact, um, it is not a huge cost to the employer to provide workers with access to paid leave. Um, and, in fact, it is um, a really important support that enables um, a worker to maintain connection with their workplace, maintain economic security uh, at a time when other things might be really quite stressful and um, falling apart in order to um, have them that security to come back to work and to keep an employee rather than lose someone uh, because they have to resign because they've run out of leave. So it's actually a benefit, which is what this uh, current government has recognised, uh, albeit after lots of campaigning by union members across the country to convince them of the argument. And in fact, they are following the lead of many employers. Millions of workers have been covered by enterprise agreements since the campaign started in 2010. And um, what we're seeing now is this national employment standard change to provide 10 days paid family violence leave is keeping up with many millions of workplaces across the country who are providing it through enterprise agreements as well. Do you think that, um, you know, this decision kind of is a um, step towards people and workplaces accepting the reality of family violence for people? I think um, what this provision does is it provides a really important step in trying to achieve gender equality. Um, what we what we want is there to be no family violence and for no worker and no one to have to access such leave entitlements. And I think what's really important about this is that it provides important security for workers who are experiencing this issue. But what it also does is it starts to encourage that conversation in workplaces and in our community to say, this is a problem, this is a societal problem for all of us. Um, it's actually a national emergency and we need to do something about it. 
So this is also part of the conversation to say family violence exists. Family violence is driven by gender inequality and we need to take all kinds of steps to address those inequalities in order to stop violence against women. So it's an important support for those women, but it's also a conversation starter around um, what else we can do to stamp out family violence in our community. And we know that there are perpetrators in workplaces. So, you know, having that conversation in a workplace about what is family violence, um, you know, what are the drivers of family violence and, um, you know, its unacceptability is an important part of the conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it makes a big difference in, I think that victims often feel that they have to go to work and mask what's going on elsewhere um, or feel kind of not empowered enough to talk about it if it's happening at work, like the work has that workplace has that sort of power. Um, And I think that this kind of awareness or, you know, that you can access this leave from your workplace um, could be a step towards a bit of less of a shame around um, accepting that as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had, you know, this issue is important to our members. And, you know, when we didn't have such entitlements, we had members who had to make a choice between whether they, um, you know, faced disciplinary action because they couldn't explain or they, they didn't feel comfortable to explain why it is. There were, um, they, they had consistent absences at work, um, perhaps needing to mask um, physical um, signs of violence and, you know, it was impacting on their work performance and there are really valid reasons for why that um, is happening to people. But uh, to create an environment where it's safe for someone to disclose that information and to then to be able to access the really important support that is required um, to get out of the situation and be safe for themselves and their families is, is a life changer for many people. Absolutely. And you mentioned economic security before, which is a big part of family violence for women in particular, um, you know, where financial abuse kind of keeps them trapped in the relationship. Um, what Do you think this will make a massive difference to that as well? Well, uh, yes, most definitely. Two-thirds of um, women experiencing family violence are in paid work, and paid work is the pathway to independence. So if you have um, entitlements that make sure you can maintain an income while you're dealing with these kinds of issues to get yourself safe and your family safe, it is absolutely going to make a difference to being able to get to safety. So that is the critically important part of it being paid rather than unpaid leave, is that you can keep paying the bills while um, sorting out your situation in order to get yourself and your family safe. It's just such a game changer. Oh, definitely. Um, in terms of, you also touched on earlier, um, you know, the workplace will have, they'll have to have training and they'll have to understand um, safety and confidentiality for the victims who are um, going to apply for this leave. Um, is there anything being put in place for workplaces to be able to handle this well? So in um, lots of the enterprise agreements that we negotiate across our industries, that is a really important provision as a part of these entitlements. That is to provide um, information and support, particularly to managers who are supporting, who may have employees who are approaching them for the leave, um, to 
you know, employers are not counsellors, nor are they, you know, required to be counsellors or um, support services in this way. But to be able to sensitively deal with the issue um, and point an employee in the right direction of where to get appropriate support and advice um, from other support services in the community. That's um, that's the critical piece of the puzzle. And as you say, confidentiality. So, you know, um, having a, you know, a system in place at the workplace so that, um, it, you know, there is a minimal amount of um, staff who are aware of what's going on to provide that important confidentiality for an employee who, who requires that. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of applying for the leave or if people are interested in how that kind of process might work, um, you know, what, what there might be organisations that may say, oh, sorry, we don't actually offer this or, you know, may not be um, willing to kind of do this necessarily for their employees. Um, what would you say to people who are experiencing that and in their workplaces? Well, the first thing that I would do is um, check if they were a member of a union. Um, everyone should be members of their relevant union and their union will be able to provide them with information about what entitlements they have in their own workplace. Some employees will be under enterprise agreements where they'll have um, conditions in place right now to provide paid leave and other support to them. Uh, if they are not on an enterprise agreement, then um, the... What, what the government has introduced into the parliament is legislation through the national employment standards. So anyone who is in paid employment will be able to access it when it passes. So it's still got to pass the Senate. So it's not in place just yet, but it will be um, very soon. And I would imagine that through um, the um, relevant sort of workplace, you know, Fair Work website, um, you will be able to find the National Employment Standard, um, family, Google Family Violence Leave National Employment Standard and um, the provisions should come up fairly soon. But so, the key thing I would say to everybody is join your union. Yes, I would like to reiterate that as well. I think <laughs> it's super important, um, you know, you have to, you, you have the solidarity of your colleagues um, you can actually affect change, as you can see, and you can be a part of even um, changing your EBA at your workplace. So absolutely join your union. Um, Lisa, that's all we have time for this morning, but thanks so much for joining us and talking to us about this today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So that was Lisa Darmanin from the ASU, um, who has been campaigning for um, family violence leave in workplaces across Australia for the last decade um, and has just finally won that with the help from various other unions like the ACTU. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. 
No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. You're listening to 3CR on, and you're on Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, so it was announced in June of this year that RMIT University and the Victorian Government uh, will team up with Albert Systems of Australia's Centre of Excellence in a two-year research partnership. Albert drones and other weapons have been used by Israel over many years against Palestinian civilians. This partnership has garnered widespread condemnation from many activists and supporters for Palestine. They demand that people reject the Victorian government and RMIT University's support of the Israeli weapons manufacturer, Albert. And one such group is RMIT Students for Palestine. And member Ella joins me now to discuss this announcement. Thanks so much for joining us, Ella. Glad to be here. Thank you. So obviously this is pretty appalling news and considering all the activism and publicity the Palestinian cause has garnered, it's pretty devastating to think um, we are very much still actively supporting Israel oppression and genocide. I think a good place to start is with Albert Systems. What is this company and how do they contribute to Israeli violence and oppression? Um, so basically, Albert Systems is Israel's largest weapons manufacturing company. It supplies about 85% of drones that are used by the Israeli um, Department of Defense. Um, it's one of the biggest sellers to the IDF. Um, and, you know, a lot of Albert um, test surveillance technology and its military equipment um, is used to maintain um, Israel's you know, illegal occupation of the West Bank and its blockade of Gaza. Um, a lot of their drones are sort of, they're marketed as being battle-proven and field-tested, which basically means that, you know, they've been deployed against Palestinians. Um, and, yeah, you know, all of this sort of range of drones and technologies and, you know, destructive weapons that Albert Systems um, uses have, yeah, basically been extensively used by the Israeli Defence Force, considering it's, like, one of its biggest um, sellers, Albert Systems yeah, is one of Israel's biggest um, you know, suppliers of weapons. Um, so, yeah, it's responsible for much of the death and devastation um, that people in Palestine, in the West Bank and Gaza have faced. And, yeah, I guess as well, like seeing in recent days, the um, Israel's, Israeli state's um, attacks on Palestinians in Gaza. Um, yeah, you know, it happens all the time. Um, the constant occupation and Albert Systems is um, actually complicit in that. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely devastating scenes coming out of Gaza, especially recently. Um, and, you know, you kind of see, I want to get 
um, stuck into the partnership that has been announced, but you kind of see these partnerships crop up a little bit, especially with companies that make weapons and um, support military regimes, partnering with universities or schools. Um, but so recently it was announced there would be a partnership between the Victorian government, RMIT and Albert. What partnership has been arranged exactly and why is this so concerning? Um, so basically, it's like a two-year research partnership, mostly focused on the development of drone technologies. They're sort of marketing it as like, oh, these drones are going to be used for humanitarian relief. Mm. But I think really, and like, and disaster relief, you know, but that's really just code for like emergencies that they deem as emergencies, which can easily be um, disaster zones and, you know, actually just code for using it on um, Palestinians in Gaza. Um, so I think, you know, that's a big sort of cover for what's actually happening. And yeah, like the research, you know, between Victorian government, RMIT University, specifically um, RMIT's aerospace engineering department, um, which has ties to a number of other weapons manufacturing companies. So I think that's partly why it's a concern, because one, Albert Systems is such a destructive company. It's Israel's largest weapons company. But like, there's already been a ramping up and um, a further sort of co- connections between universities and weapons companies. So, like, RMIT has ties to um, Boeing Defence, Lockheed Martin, BAA Systems, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of these companies um, work closely with the State of Israel to produce, you know, drones that enforce the siege of Gaza and whatnot. Um, and RMIT has been awarded historically a lot of money to do research into these um, drone technologies. And so this deal with Albert Systems is just a sort of stepping up of those ties um, between RMIT and weapons companies and then the Victorian government actually as well enabling this too. Um, And so, yeah, I think, like, it's concerning because this has been going on for a number of years already, but this step towards a um, more, like, you know, specific partnership with Albert Systems, I think, yeah, it does um, highlight that there's actually a lot more of this to come um, in terms of weapons deals between universities and um, these weapons companies. And we need to start to um, really stand against this notion that our universities are doing research into um, destructive you know, weapons, basically. Yeah, and I think you made such a good point where this kind of stuff is masked with, you know, uh, these drones will be used for humanitarian purposes or not explicit with exactly who and where and what they'll be used for on purpose to kind of manipulate the situation to be, oh, this is for good and um, to kind of deter a bit of bad publicity when it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious what where they'll be used. Um, so you were part of a group called RMIT Students for Palestine. Um, how did this group get formed and what are the aims of the group? Um, basically, it was formed actually like quite a few years ago um, when there was like a siege on Gaza Um and the group formed from a range of, like, you know, socialists on campus, activists on campus, pro-Palestine um, activists to come together to, you know, show solidarity with Palestine, but also demand that our university cut ties to weapons companies that um, support Israel. Um, and I guess recently we've sort of re, um, you know, revamped the group and, um, yeah, it's just been formed by a bunch of socialists and activists and um, Palestine supporters on campus. And basically, we think that 
um, RMIT must cut ties with all defence companies, and specifically um, Albert Systems. And that's kind of the main aim of our group, to demand that RMIT cut ties to these companies. Because, you know, students don't want um, our university to be complicit in um, supporting an apartheid regime. Yeah. And um, obviously with this recent announcement, what sort of support have you seen this far? Um, Well, obviously Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Australia has Mm -hmm. shared our, like, speak out that we're having on campus on Thursday. Um, A lot of, yeah, very Palestine groups around Melbourne um, have, you know, promoted our um, event. Like, in general, a lot of free Palestine groups um, are very outspoken about Albert systems and yeah. um, its role and why we need to um, cut all ties with Albert systems everywhere. Um, so there's a lot of groups in Britain who speak out against Albert systems. There was actually a group of activists who um, were successful in shutting down um, a few Albert systems factories in England, um, which is pretty cool. Wow, yeah. Um, but yeah, they haven't shown support for us necessarily, but I think you know it shows that there's a widespread... Um, sort of demand amongst the Free Palestine, um, you know, community of activists that, yeah, they want Albert Systems to be sort of um, cut all ties with and whatnot. So, yeah. you know, we've got support from a range of groups and, you know, staff members and other yeah. students as well. Yeah. yeah, and, I mean, it kind of shows that, like, you can have an influence, I guess, what happened in the UK. Um, you mentioned briefly the Speak Out that's happening this week. Um uh, would you want to speak a bit more about that and what else people can do now to stop uh, this partnership um, or condemn it? Um, so, yeah, we've got a speak-out on Thursday at 1pm um, just on Bowen Street on campus to demand that RMIT cut ties to Albert Systems. We've also had a petition running for the past few weeks um, and we've had a few organising meetings and whatnot. So, yeah, the main thing people should do is try to come to the speak-out at RMIT University on Thursday at one o'clock. Um, we want to get as many, you know, free Palestine activists um, to come and demand that RMIT cut ties, even if you're not a student. Um, we actually think you should all come. Um, and, yeah, as well, like, follow our, you know, social media pages to stay up to date with the activism that we're going to be organising um, into the future. And I think everyone as well should just um, actually read about what's going on and think about actually getting involved in pre-Palestine activism into the future in general, because this is an ongoing issue, obviously, um, the genocide towards Palestinian people. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and there's some incredible people doing some incredible research uh, and posting and um, forming groups on social media. And we can link to the RMIT Students for Palestine Instagram on our website as well. Um, Well, Ella, that's all we have time for this morning. Thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Breakfast and discussing. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. That was Ella from RMIT Students for Palestine, a group of RMIT students who stand unashamedly with Palestinians in their struggle against apartheid. They have organised a speak out this Thursday at 1pm on Bowen Street to demand RMIT cut ties with Albert Systems. As Ella said, it's not uh, exclusive to RMIT students. They want as many people on the ground as possible. So if you're uh, free and around, um, get down to Bowen Street 1pm on Thursday. All right, that brings us to the end of the program. The show was pretty jam-packed, would you say, Jeff? <laughs> Extremely <laughs> jam-packed. <laughs>
Uh, we've just been bursting at the seams to yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, To quickly go through what we had on the program earlier, Fung spoke with Jesse Hooper um, about the Young Leaders Program organised by the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. And then I spoke with Renee Dixon, who is the founder and chair of the Forcibly Displaced People Network, about their recently released survey. And then we heard a replay of Fung's interview with Shannon Bethune um, about uh, Shannon's from Liberty Victoria about a report released earlier this year on menstrual leave. And then I spoke with Lisa Damanen from the Australian Services Union about um, recent uh, family violence leave in workplaces across Australia. And then you just heard from Ella from RMIT Students for Palestine speaking about the recent partnership of RMIT Victorian Government and Albert Systems, which is a weapons manufacturer uh, for Israel. Um, And yeah, up next we have Accent of Women, as always. Uh, Keep it locked to 3CR um, and we will see you next. Not see you. We will... (laughs) You will hear from us us. (laughs) (laughs) next Tuesday morning. Have a good Tuesday.